Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowley. In today's episode, we'll be discussing whether the single-member voting system we use in Australia can ever be truly fair and the relative value of using survey data and polling data as opposed to raw election result data in assessing how people have voted. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Peter Brent. Peter is an election watcher, adjunct fellow at Swinburne University and writer for Inside Story. Hello, Peter. Hello, Ben. My second guest is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Ben. Hi, Peter. Until recently, South Australia was unique in the Australian political system for having a constitutional requirement that their electoral boundaries be drawn so that they are fair. A clause in the constitution required that a party that won a majority of the popular vote, commonly interpreted as referring to the two-party preferred vote, would win a majority of seats and thus form government. At the end of 2017, shortly before the 2018 state election, which saw the Liberal Party return to power, the South Australian Parliament repealed this requirement, and in late October this year, an attempt by the South Australian Liberal Government to restore the clause failed. This means that the upcoming South Australian redistribution will proceed with no requirement that they fit the boundaries to a fair result. Stuart, what does it mean when we say that an electoral system is fair? Well, one, I think that the whole term fair is... is um pretty poor and actually the the discussion of what that means certainly the South Australian constitution was relatively clear you know you win a majority of the popular vote you win a majority of the seats um, yet we accept the results when they don't show that and of course um, I think as you've noted there's there's problems when you're including minor parties which might actually skew the results in particular ways when you have independence Yes, it works when you have just two major parties. But when you have a whole series of other parties around, um, actually this fairness idea, the notion of fair, really only makes sense if you think of it, say, in a, an American context, United States context, um, where you might have really weirdly shaped, gerrymandered um, electorates. But otherwise, you're trying to uh, engineer particular results by moving boundaries. And it's backward-looking, not forward-looking. That is, it responds to the previous uh, election. So you're doing a whole sort of things backwards in reality. Um, I would actually say that it doesn't work. It's rather pointless to try to try and engineer particular results um, and actually to allow uh, independent commissions to work on them in the way that they should. So, I mean, one of the things that I, I do find particularly strange about the concept is the way that it, it treats the two-party preferred vote as being the most important vote. And in one sense, that makes sense because of our preferential system. But in the end, voters who vote for a minor party or an independent and then give their preference to a major party haven't voted for that major party, right? We don't know if, you know, if this was a head-to-head first-past-the-post system. Some of those voters might have said, you know what, it's more important. I'd rather make a clear vote for this major party. Others of them may not care particularly about the major parties or feel like they're forced into making a choice because of our our compulsory preferential system. So, uh, and even if they do have a preference between the major parties, uh, that doesn't mean that they would feel fully represented by one of those major parties. So it is strange how we often think about these elections as, well, most of the time the majority party wins. But if you look at the primary votes, we haven't had a majority uh, vote for a single party in many decades, even though most elections produce a majority government, and that's uh, that's in both state and federal politics. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree completely. The very notion that when you know two thirds to three quarters of people, you know, are, are, 
that's all that votes for major parties should somehow be equated into this magical two-party preferred and therefore that should de- decide who government is, um, is something of a throwback to this notion that there are only two parties. Now, both major parties like the idea that there should only be a Labour and a Liberal Party, but that's not the reality of how politics in Australia now works in the you know, early part of the 21st century. Yeah, great for the 1950s, 60s, maybe even the 70s, um, but we actually need to think, what does it mean to have a result like this? Uh, I would have thought that a PR system um, would actually provide you with that fair result. In one sense, the upper house starts to replicate the vote that you received, which is actually what you should be basing it on, not on your capacity to garner preferences, whether through deals or other mechanism or machinations. So it's really kind of a, a bit screwy to base it on that two-party preferred. I'm going to I'm going to get dissent from this consensus. Those uh, objections you made, Ben and and Stuart agreed with about using two-party preferred. They would apply to any electorate, any electoral division. Um, it's decided by who wins the two-candidate preferred vote. So, I mean, I I think the aspiration. I certainly take the point that the major party total vote is is depleting and these concepts become more problematic with every election as that total major party primary vote depletes. But I think the aspiration that the party that wins the two-party preferred aggregate vote forms government, I think given if, if we're operating within a majoritarian system, uh, then ideally that's what would happen. So those elections at which that doesn't happen, uh, they they just leave a sort of a sour taste in in my mouth. And even though I mean that's the problem with majoritarian systems is that a party wins a slender majority of seats and a slender majority of votes, they get 100% of the uh, government. So it's winner take all. And that's that's a problem, but it's even worse when the party doesn't even even win a majority of the vote. So um, I, I think it was a fair enough aspiration. The, the problem was that it, it did, the worst thing about it was it didn't work. It was impossible to do. Let's get to that because I th- I think even for those of us who critique the idea of using two party preferred, we do agree that it is preferable that if you're going to have a majoritarian result. Uh, the party that wins more of those votes is is in a better position. But let's get to that point, Peter, about why um, why it didn't work. Exactly as Stuart said, because it's looking backwards and you can't tell the future. So if you use the the boundaries at the last election, what what they do, what they did was adjust the boundaries so that uh, a uniform swing from the last election to 50-50, two party preferred divvies up the seats about 50-50. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a nice idea. But each election is different, and they really, really screwed up after that big Labor win in 2006, at which the Rand Labor government won many seats off the Liberal Party. And so at the next election, there were all these electorates at which the Liberal mem- previous Liberal members' personal vote had gone, and the Labor member had, had generated personal votes and so that was really, and, and the commission still divvied up the, made the pendulum according to the 2006 election. Uh, then Labor won with about 48% of the vote in 2010. And then to uh, sort of throw good money after bad or to 
um, I don't know what the metaphor is, but then then they decided not to not to even try for the two thousand and fourteen election, and um, and that was exactly when they should have uh, they certainly should have adjusted it then. So going into that two thousand and fourteen election, the pendulum said Liberals need more than fifty three percent to win, and the pendulum was right because they, they got fifty three and they lost. So the the concept behind fairness in this South Australian context was based on the pendulum, right? And based on uniform swing, which, uh, you know, we all look at the pendulum, it's a useful exercise. It's useful to give you a sense of the kind of scale that a party would need to gain to, to win power. But we all know that swings aren't uniform, right? And that it's not just that they're not uniform, but they're kind of... Um, uniformly ununiform sometimes in that you have situations where uh it's not just it's the swings are not necessarily balanced out by one marginal swinging more than another right like there are times and this certainly applied in 2010 in south australia where um where labor consistently did better in the marginals than it did in the safe seats which meant a statewide vote that shouldn't have been enough for them to form government was enough for them to form government and that was largely because of, of sophomore surge with the, the personal vote change. And then the, the ones they happened to nearly every seat they decided to campaign strongly in was a sophomore was a sophomore seat with a new Labor MP. So that that was really what what screwed up the commission's boundaries that time. And part of the theory behind sophomore surge is you have a new MP, they have a personal vote that didn't exist at the past at the previous election, and ideally uh, they're also replacing a former MP of the opposing party, so their personal vote has disappeared. So you kind of have this double effect in the most extreme cases where personal vote means that those seats tend to get a bigger swing than uh, a different seat, and it sometimes does mean governments that are going for a second term do better in the marginals than than the statewide vote would suggest. And, and you you have you have campaign effects, you have candidate effects. You know you can be a government that's looking like it's going to win, uh, and you have a dud candidate. You know, and it can be or several dud candidates. Um, so, it, I mean, I just end up thinking that you know, yes, a nice aspiration, but it's in a system that really doesn't want to accommodate that. I mean, the fair the fair part has always, or to me, has always really meant to reflect. Um, the way that you draw boundaries so that they're not deliberately drawn to be partisan. Um, so you draw them on, you know, community of, uh, of interest, you draw them on the geographics, you draw them on whatever the, those particular criteria are, but not on partisan advantage. Whereas in one sense, this boundary drawing is exactly doing that, not intending to make advantage for one or the other, but to try and look into the crystal ball and say, well, this area is likely to vote for this party, therefore we'll draw it in a particular way for or against them. Um, that once again comes back to, you know, are you trying to create partisan advantage or disadvantage because of the popular vote? Um, that also also it starts to feel like um, we have perfect knowledge and we have perfect voters and we have um, everybody voting who should vote when we know that we don't have everybody, you know, A, fronting up when they're registered to vote or even registered to vote. We sometimes have this idea that you can rank everyone in the country by how likely they are to vote for the Labor Party or vote for the Liberal Party. Uh, and they are all sitting in order. And then uh, there's a swing. And so the first 2% of people 
move over to the other side, but they all stay in the same order, which is clearly not true. I mean, the 2019 election is a perfect example, right? Like the the swings in each individual state were much bigger than the national result. And so there wasn't that much change nationally while there was quite a lot of change below the, below the line. A lot of people rearranged themselves. If you were to try and rank every booth in the country by its uh, its... 2PP vote, quite a lot of booths would have moved a long way in their rankings. Sure, yeah. Uh, there, there's always a huge discrepancy. Not, not a, You don't have to go down to booth level, but, but electorate level, you know, big swings one way to big swings another way at, at every election. I mean, the theory of Malcolm McCarris's pendulum, and Malcolm had a hand in this South Australian uh, law, is that the, 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 the deviation cancels out. So uh, you plot X percent along the pendulum, and that's the net change in seats. And I mean, it, it does usually happen, but particularly after big wins by one side or the other, it, it tends not to. It's worth touching on as well the reason why South Australia wanted to use this, right? So we have we know that there are election results which don't quite match the two PP. But South Australia was in a position, like we, we have a history in this country, not so much of gerrymandering, but of certainly a malapportionment where different states draw boundaries, usually so that rural electorates are smaller and urban electorates are larger, which tends to favour rural voters and helps in the past did help Labor sometimes stay in power, but these days usually helps the Conservatives stay in power. Um, and South Australia had such a system until I believe the 1970s. But then after that system was abolished, um, they, they had a problem where because of the relative concentration of Liberal and Labor voters, Labor was consistently like had a better chance of winning. And we've seen this in, in other states that New South Wales traditionally has been a Labor state and that partly reflected that Liberal, if you have a lot of voters for one party who are stacked up in uh, a small number of safe seats, they can win half the vote and fall a long way short of winning the election. Uh, it's a thing we see in the US where apart from the gerrymandering, Democrats tend to win super majorities in urban electorates and Republicans win more districts uh, with smaller margins. The irony is that ever since they ever since they put in this fairness clause, it's it's been even worse than before. Labor's formed government three times despite losing the vote so it, it made it worse that was uh i mean this also points to this also points to a particular question about you know where you perceive your voters to be <clears throat> if liberal or conservative voters are only going to be concentrated heavily in particular electorates yes but this was always the the um, complaint certainly in wa about the malapportioned upper house so we need to have this to give rural voters a voice but actually the liberal parties discovered that actually it's perfectly capable of winning seats in cities so it doesn't need those malapportionments to trump somehow give it a tricked up um, majority so i actually think that this it goes a long way to also you know particular beliefs that parties have about the system and also their own attempts to engineer particular outcomes that will be favourable to them without having to go to the Joe Bielke Peterson or West Australian, you know, gerrymanders or malapportionments or whatever you want to call them. Um, so you don't have to go that far. If you can use um, other ways that sound good, and yes, we want fair results, 
Um, we also have to accept the shortcomings of the particular systems that we have. If we wanted fair results, and this is, I'll come back to it, that if we wanted fair results, we'd have PR. But we don't have PR. We have this particular system, a Westminster system based around a whole set of ideas, then, you know, geographical representation. Then that's what we're kind of going to get. Peter, you were saying earlier, we have a majoritarian system. That's a choice. Like, that's a choice that this country has made. Depends what you mean by choice, but yeah, I mean, an, an evolution. Yeah, but it's a, I mean, we've had, we've had governments that, like, that is, a, that is a system that people favor for a reason. And one of those reasons is that it does produce stable majority governments and it does maintain the two-party system. Mm. I mean, it's, it's something we've always had. So to say that people favor it, I, I don't, you know. That's true. It's part of having a majoritarian system that it has advantages and disadvantages. And one advantage that a lot of people would see is that it produces relatively stable majority governments most of the time. And it tends to produce a system where you have two major parties to pick from. None of those are perfect. None of those guarantee it, but it, it tends to favor that. Um, but one of the one of the results of that is that sometimes you get a result that goes the wrong way and like i think sometimes it feels a little bit like the south australian fairness clause is an attempt by the major parties to say we want the result to be fair between us but we don't we don't want to go too far you know like we don't want to we don't want to have a system where we're actually required to share power evenly with all the parties that uh, win votes not not share power but share representation evenly with all the parties that win votes um but I feel like that's a little bit like eating, uh, having a cake and eating it too. Well, that that's just preferential voting, isn't it? Remember the the Brits um, had a plebiscite on on changing either to oh, hang on, no, to, whether to choose preferential voting, and they knocked it back. Um, but there was also discussion about PR, I think, earlier, and then preferential voting is almost a bit of a halfway. Uh, halfway between i mean preferential voting is a little bit better for uh independence and probably minor parties um so i i uh i mean obviously yeah south australia wasn't prepared to to move to pr which which would really then open things up and and uh produce proportional representation so you'd get x percent of the vote would roughly Give you X percent of the seats, and so on. I um I just want to briefly segue, if I can, to a little uh, hobby horse of mine, which is our system of single-member electorates. In um, I'm just moving to the federal system now, but this applies to most states. Uh, majoritarian in the lower house and PR in the upper house is just a pretty much a recipe for deadlock. And it's really that as, as the major party votes decline over the years and over the decades, the the upper house crossbench swells, and governments are just finding it harder and harder to get their legislation through. And we have a very powerful upper house, and it's because we have mm. majoritarian in the lower house, which nearly always means one one party forms government and doesn't worry about the others. And then in the upper house, you've got people who have no, who have no stake. So if you compare to New Zealand, where a major party has to get a few others to join with them and and form a majority, and then that those other parties have at least some stake in in not making life too difficult. 
And so, and so I think that that's another reason for us to move to PR in the lower house uh, federally. It's interesting to compare the situation we've had at most recent elections to the 2010 election, where we, you know, there was a single Green in the lower house um, who thus, because of that, it forced Labor to make a more comprehensive agreement with the Greens, but it also it also gave the Greens an incentive to appear to be responsible and sensible and, and work together. And it kind of brought the two together. And it even though the Greens were not part of the government, there was sort of an expectation that they had some responsibility for success. And the Greens and Labor had a majority in the Senate. And the Senate was largely functional, right? Like the House, if anything, was a more difficult chamber for the government. Well, if anything got through the House, um, it got through the Senate, didn't it? Because it had to, it had to get the one Green on board to get through the House. So it meant the Greens were on board. And But, it, I mean, it did it did restrict that, that Labor government to uh, doing things that the Greens like. <laughs> in the same way that if there had been a PR system in the lower house, probably you would see that like they would have needed to work with the Greens uh, in, the same, in a sort of similar way. It, it gave us a taste, if anything, of what that would look like, even though the, the numbers in the lower house were not proportional, but the kind of share of power was in a way. The parties would evolve, of course, to to adapt to a new system and I just wonder what the Greens would do, whether they'd have that German-style split between fundies and realists. Um, If you want to be part of government, you want to be in cabinet, um, you know, you've got to sell out some of your principles. Um, So so that'd be be interesting. But they ended up going their separate ways before the next election anyway in... uh, Oh, they've they've been going doing that for the last twenty years. It's just the Germans managed to sort it out, you know, crap, way back in the early nineties. Um, for the Australian Greens, it's been an ongoing discussion, and it's only really started to come to some sort of um, final outcome. Uh, i.e. you campaign to win government of some kind or some saying government really in the last you know f- three or four years and go back a little bit further in terms of the Victorians um, but then you know they have their own issues now in Victoria um, Queensland's fully on board and you know happily um, although they've become more left-wing interestingly as they've uh, decided to become more um, electorally focused um, which is kind of I find quite interesting. That that debate has been ongoing inside the Greens for a long, long time, um, and there's always a tension there. I mean, it's part of the reason why, you know, you have 20 years of um, policy documents going from, you know, 100, no, 180 pages um, down to far less than that. You know, you've got a now a little booklet worth of policies. That's part of that process of saying, well, we're not going to construct the you know, nth degree of policy. We're going to give fairly broad statements that the politicians can then utilise when they're, if in government. Um, and you've seen it work when you look at um, Tasmania. The, the Labor Party might not have liked the Greens being in government, particularly as they managed to split themselves in two, but it actually worked insofar as you could make Nick McKim, uh, who was then the leader, um, the prisons minister. And then he did what government wished to do, which was uh, cut back on um, staff or take take the union on. Was he good at defending these things? I wasn't really paying attention. He was actually, well, he was good for government. He was good for the Labor Party insofar as he took the flack. You know, everybody's saying, but aren't you supposedly pro-union? Um, and it's like, well, no, no, we've got to do these things. We're in government now. You know, we have to be reasonable and rational. 
So they got a bit of a backlash on that, but at the same time, you know, dare I say it provided cover for the Labor Party, uh, but at the same time, um, they were being responsible and reasonable. So right after the federal election, the analysis of the results started very quickly, focusing on the limited data we had then, which was mostly swing results at the seat level. There were some early attempts to look at the demographic trends in terms of which way seats had swung and what that said about the kinds of voters that might have flipped. Uh, It did show that a lot of low-income areas appeared to have swung towards the coalition while higher-income areas swung towards Labor, which was a bit of a reversal of what had happened at the previous election. In the last six months, we've now been able to analyse election results at a more fine-tuned level, looking at election results down to the booth level and comparing it to census data. But ultimately, this data is not at the individual level. Um, and it leaves analysts vulnerable to the ecological fallacy where you confuse the characteristics of a group of people um, as if they apply to all individual people in that group. On the other hand, we have the polls and we have individual survey data. Uh, so some of that is is by polling firms, but also by academic organisations, a sample of the population, but a sample that can be asked directly how they voted and why, and you can match this data directly to their individual demographics. Uh, Peter, what do you think are the relative strengths and weaknesses of these sort of different methods we can use to analyse election results? Let's look at America, which has buckets and buckets of opinion polls and buckets and buckets of exit polls, especially at presidential elections. And you can Google them and the New York Times has some and CNN and ABC and blah, blah. And they have thousands of respondents and they have lots and lots of cross tabulations and categories and it's really fantastic they at the last presidential election for example you can look at them all and they pretty well say they show that people on lower incomes swung to the republicans even though the democratic candidates still got a majority of their vote and it's the opposite happened in wealthier people and you can look at drill down to all sorts of demographics in australia we have absolutely nothing approaching that um, because of you know the diseconomies of scale, and even though we do try to uh, we do mimic America, you know our, our commentators sometimes mimic America talking about uh, pathway to victory. So we, we adopt these terms, but really we don't have the tools to use them properly. That's a long way of saying we have we have close to no exit polls in this country. You mentioned a couple of university ones um, that maybe showed some funny things. I don't know whether they were truly, whether you call them exit polls anyway, exit polls are, are taken on, on election day. So that really only leaves us with that polling booth data and our electoral commission has excellent data. You know, I mean, it really has wonderful data down to polling booth and electorate level that most other countries or many other countries can't provide. So there is the ecological fallacy, uh, as you mentioned, but I think that that's overhyped. I mean, I do think, so so I read the Labor report um, that came out last month, this month, and I haven't done booth by booth uh, swing analysis with census data this time, but but they wrote that they had, and it confirms this group, that group, and that group, you know, low-income people, Christians, Chinese, Queenslanders, <laughs> which is a, sort of almost like a joke, really, <laughs> uh, sw- swung to the coalition. 
and wealthier people swung to Labor. As you say, that that's a large part of correction to 2016 when votes voters swung the other way. So I, I think it's reasonable to infer, obviously not every individual, how every individual swung, but I think it's reasonable to infer that low-income voters swung to the coalition based on all that booth and electorate data. And so it's, yeah, I mean, and that's really a strong feature of that election. Again, you've got to look at the longer trend and 2016 represented a really big, um, that was quite aberrational itself, probably because of, because of Medi-Scare. You've got uh, a lot of the quote unquote battlers swinging, swinging to labor. So a lot of that was a, a lot of this year was a correction of, for that. I think that they're two different things. Booths, booth data gives you who voted, you know, what way in a particular place, or what you can at that, you know, um, individual booth level, and you can match that with um, sort of the uh, ABS data and get some sense of what you know the, the various bits of the electorate are doing. The survey data, of course, gives you much more information about um, in people's individual habits in terms of voting. So I actually think they do quite separate things at the end of the day. Um, like the AES, you know, for all its faults, and it has a few, um, at least collects information about particular groups of voters. Um, it's not really broad enough, and I'd much rather see much larger surveys so you could actually get a real sense of, well, is a working class, or however you want to def define them, person from Brisbane the same as one in um, Cairns, the same as one in Kalgoorlie, or wherever. Um, so you'd actually have that kind of really broad range data. But that's what the survey data can do. It can allow you to drill down into um, what people are thinking about and why they're thinking them. They have their own problem in that people think about the way they voted and the way they think they voted if they remember it correctly. And so, of course, the further away you get from the election, the, there's a slight error starts to appear from people saying, oh, yes, I voted Labor, when in actual fact they may have voted for you know, a second or third party person and they voted maybe Labor afterwards. It usually favours the winner. So whoever won gets a higher recall of uh, being voted. Yeah, so you run into that slight problem, but you do also get a sense of why people are voting in particular directions. Asking people why they voted, especially if it's after the results are in and the stories are being told. If the opposition lost, the leader of the opposition's uh, personal standing just goes through the floor and he's, he or she is a total joke and the party's a total joke and, and that then infects people's uh, memory of, of why they voted. So that's why it's good to catch them on the day. I guess that's why you, you distinguish between an exit poll and a survey, right? That uh, an exit poll hopefully has been captured before that um, before that change in perception has taken place. Oh, no, I, I look at surveys and consider them to be taking part in a whole range of times. So you know, you're doing something just before the election, you know, or maybe the months before the election about why people are, look, how they're looking at particular issues. Um, you know, then you see what appears in the election itself, and then you can test that again afterwards. Sure, there's plenty of people who'll pick up on, oh, yes, Bill Shorten was bloody awful, and that's why they lost. And that was the narrative that developed very rapidly um, about the last election, 2019 election. 
But I also think there's a certain amount of people who went, actually, it was a crap campaign, absolute rubbish campaign. As much as Bill was disliked or not overly liked, and I think there's a distinction between disliked and just not liked. I'd actually draw a distinction between not being liked and not being trusted. Bill's public persona is of a pretty shifty guy who, you know, very crafty and possibly two-faced. That got all wrapped up in the economics stuff. And so that's different to I just don't like that person because that's not really a a reason. To be scared of them being prime minister is... So so I think it's the reason you don't like them that's important. Sure. No, I, and I, I wouldn't disagree with you there. Um, but, you know, when we come to the approval-disapproval, um, uh, the distinction I draw is between, you know, you're not sure about a person, you think that they might be okay in government, um, but you don't like the look of them or whatever. They're all the reasons that people might want to vote in a particular way, as opposed to actively disliking someone for some particular reason or actively liking someone. Here I'm using like as in, oh, I trust this person, they look good, they sound like the guy next door, you know, um, it's the daggy dad from down the road. You know, all the Scott Morrison tropes, which gave him an air of both likability and, you know, he doesn't appear untrustworthy. You know, he could be worthy of trust. Whereas, yes, you have the, the Mr. Shifty, who's always had a slightly odd way of carrying himself and talking um, that make people go, what's he hiding? Is he hiding anything? Rather than, well, rather than actually going, is there anything inside there? Um, which would have been the logical comment. No, he seems somehow shifty. The Prime Minister doesn't have to show that they can be trusted because in Morrison's case, it was only for eight months or so. They've seen... People have seen him in operation, so it's harder to get scared about re-electing a prime minister than it is about this totally unknown quantity. It has those characteristics that we've just been discussing. Yeah, I just something something Stuart said um, just made me think about this. That if you're looking at uh, you know low income, if you're taking national surveys or even using national census data, a low income Adelaide family is not like a low-income Sydney family. Somebody on Sydney's lower-income electorates are sort of middle-income in Adelaide. And, of course, rural seats tend to be low-income, but they're often asset-rich. So uh, these are very blunt blunt tools, so they need to be sort of cauterized into... It's good to compare low- and high-income Sydney seats and low-income, low- and high-income Adelaide seats, but you get into trouble when you start uh, doing national numbers. Oh, yes, no, I would completely agree with you there. Um, yeah, that's the bit where I go, well, I'd like to see what these these people, you know, in these particular seats are thinking, and I'd like to see this particular group of people who might be, well, we'll put them on the same level, or then we'll adjust for well, what is low income? What does it actually mean? Or, you know, um, oh, they're Christians. Oh, which kind of Christian are they? <laughs> you know, um, and I think that makes a difference. The Labor report had a few of those post hoc fallacies in it, and one of them was Christians swung to Morrison, therefore Christians are an important demographic that we have to win back. There's a sort of a circular logic there. It's not surprising that Christians would swing to the most overtly, even puts Kevin to shame, Kevin Rudd, overtly church-going prime minister, you know, we've possibly ever had. Uh, So that doesn't necessarily mean that Christianity is where it's all at from now on. You know, if the Labour Party starts chasing chasing after Christians, then they're going to get themselves in all sorts of trouble, I think. 
ultimately, I think you need a bit of both. Like the the polling booth data gives you the polling booth data gives you a tremendous amount of detail about uh, how people voted. And I think when you go down to the SA one level with all the information we have, you can you can get a lot of information that. Uh, gets around the ecological fallacy. But for example, it won't tell you really anything about the gender gap um, because most areas have a pretty consistent gender balance. And even for young people and old people, you know, like you're not going to find polling booths which are just all young people. And even if you do, they're not really going to be representative of other young people. So I think I think both things are useful, but you have to take them as part of a package. And I think the lesson I take away is never believe the first bit of analysis you see on its own. Like we need to be looking at this election from all sorts of different angles to to kind of get a good sense of what happened. We just need much, 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 much more of the polling. I mean, ideally, there's so little that it's really hard to, to make much use of it. I used to look forward to the news poll the first quarterly after an election because they would then disaggregate their final week poll uh, in terms of age and gender so, you because know, their first line would be what happened at the last election and then what happened at this quarter, in this latest quarter. But they and the other pollsters are in the doghouse at the moment. We won't really know what to do with the, <laughs> what they'll do on that first line. That'll be interesting. I don't know why we don't do more polling. I think we have this part of a, you know, the polling generally is, is problematic or has been become problematic, you know, and YouGov news poll are saying, oh, but we've changed our methodology. Um, and I think that's something that every pollster is now having to tackle. Um, and, you know, maybe polls will only be one of the tools that um, we use, but it highlights something that I, I think has been missed um, for a little while, which is about the, the mobility of particularly um, younger people or certainly that under 24 demographic. Firstly, in terms of some countries where they don't vote terribly often, you know, they're the, they're the ones who don't go and enrol. Um, in Australia, they're also or haven't been at various times unless the electoral commissions do some work. Also, the, electric, the, the, or the group that doesn't tend to want to vote that much but with, with the added complication of the, their mobility and their non-landlidenness, their non, you know, what's their social media use? How are we going to co- contact them, contract them? You know, suddenly everybody's focusing on things like, you know, Instagram or they're focusing on Facebook or they're focusing on whatever. Um, and kind of missing that um, a lot of young people are doing something slightly different. I'm actually part of a group that's doing some survey work around that and starting to show up, actually, there's something else happening behind here that we've never really dug into. Now, if they're doing it differently, pollsters don't pick it up, uh, and our surveys probably won't pick it up as well, which means we'll always be missing a piece of the puzzle, um, which maybe is something we have to take into account going forward, particularly as we pass the 25 million mark and head on towards the 30 million population-wise, um, that's going to become a bigger part of the, the electorate. It's getting harder and harder to, to survey, that, that's for sure. Well, it's getting, che- it's getting easier in some ways. It's cheaper than it used to be uh, with robo-polls and so on. But it, yeah, as you say, it's harder to, to reach. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Stuart and Peter, for joining me. Thanks, Stuart. Cheers, mate. And thanks, Peter. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Stuart. 
So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>